This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Lance Gould has a pretty terrific story to tell. He began as a journalist covering the UN and ended up becoming Ariana Huffington's bestie, managing the opinion section for the Huffington Post. He says only the Pope refused to take his call. Now he is the founder and chief executive officer of Brooklyn Story Lab, a media strategy firm that teaches purpose-driven organizations how to be more effective storytellers. And quite a bit of his work revolves around world food issues. He was previously a journalist who held newsroom positions at the Huffington Post, the Boston Phoenix, and the New York Daily News and Spy Magazine. And among other tidbits, we learn that Lance's own mother was a food writer. Let's hear from Lance. I'd like to welcome you to the Let's Talk About Food podcast Mm -hmm. and recognize that I knew you in your different incarnation when you were at the Boston Phoenix. Give me a little thumbnail sketch of the career arc of Lance Gould. It was a delight to be in Boston. I had gone to college at Boston at Brandeis, and to return as the editor of the Phoenix was really a wonderful thing. I have great affection for the Phoenix, for alt-weeklies generally, the history of the Phoenix. When I think about all the film critics and all the music critics and all the amazing political stories that have come out of there, it's just mind-blowing. After I left Boston, I came back to New York, where I'm from. And I got a job at AOL, where I was working in their SEO department in, in a journalism lab scenario. And three months after I got there, AOL bought Huffington Post. And shortly, my biggest internal collaborator became Ariana Huffington. And I was soon put onto her team and spent the next six years with her working as an executive editor, covering a variety of scenarios, including the opinion section in which I was leading to get luminaries to write for us. I was traveling all over the world. I was meeting really interesting people. At one point, Huffington Post had 200 million unique visitors a month. It was one of the largest news sites on the planet. And the blog traffic was about 18% of that traffic. So it was really a marvel to work in that environment and to work with the name Huffington Post meant something to the point where I could tell you who I didn't get to write for us. I couldn't get the Pope <laughs> and Queen Elizabeth. Pretty much everybody else we were able to get to write for HuffPost. And one formula I found in that scenario was utilizing social good as a route to bringing people onto the platform. When you meet somebody like, say, a Richard Branson, who has a a great interest in oceans, when I first met with him and his team, I said, you should write for us. And they said, sure, sure, but nothing happened right away. But then I said to his team as well, and are you really interested in oceans? And Ocean Health, why don't you do a piece for World Oceans Day? And boom, that was done. And so after I left HuffPost in 2017, I started my own company called Brooklyn Story Lab, and our mission statement is that we teach purpose-driven organizations how to think and behave like media companies. 
So really what we're doing is helping purpose-driven social good organizations better tell and amplify their stories. Because all of us, you, myself, we're all media companies, but not all of us have the skill set or the capacity to tell or amplify those stories. So that's what we do. Wow. Before we get into the real questions I have about you and food and what Brooklyn Story Labs is doing around food, you have to give me a little Ariana Huffington. What is it like to work with Ariana Huffington? (laughs) (laughs) I loved working with Ariana. She's a marvel. She preaches sleep. That's one of her big things right now, but I don't know that she actually does sleep because she seems like she's constantly on the move. I'm really blown away by what she's been able to accomplish. And she was the captain of the Cambridge debate team. So she's really quite a skilled orator. She's really a great thinker. And it was really just a a marvel working with her. In terms of the work environment in HuffPost, there wasn't a lot of top-down management. Everyone was really free to do what they want. It could be a rough and tumble playroom in terms of the newsroom sometimes, but, but it was really an environment in which the best ideas won. I love it. I think I read her Picasso biography before I understood that she was also Stetsonopoulos and then became Huffington Post. And then, oh my goodness, what a talent. Just an incredible talent. Yeah, because of course, this podcast is called Let's Talk About Food. Let's talk about food. Where does food fit in this incredible media galaxy that is Lance Gould? Our North Stars are the SDGs, and I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with the SDGs, but it's the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And in 2015, the UN unanimously passed, and it's pretty amazing when you think that it's so difficult to get anything passed in Washington or in the UN or any governing body to get unanimous support for something is incredible. It's 193 countries, some really messed up countries, North Korea and some of these other closed states all aligned. Everyone's on board with with the SDGs. The SDGs are are a plan to make the planet more sustainable and to make sure no one gets left behind with a 15-year blueprint for sustainability that went from 2015 that will end in 2030. It's also known as the 2030 Agenda. There are 17 different goals here, and they cover as many different topics as education, health, poverty, climate, life on land, life underwater, and one of them is food in SDG 2. It's called Zero Hunger. And in terms of food, we put together an event last year during UNGA, which is the UNGA, UN General Assembly. Every year there's a a UN week, and this is also known as UNGA. And we put an UNGA event together last year that was a convening all about food and food systems. Now, what's interesting is in the development world, there's a lot of talk about systems and how agriculture and science and climate, everything affects food together as a system. And we were looking at every possible angle when it comes to food. We had Jose Ramos Horta, who's a Nobel Peace Prize winner from Timor-Leste, the former president of Timor-Leste, was one of our guest speakers. And he talked about conflict resolution and food and how in times of great crises, how food and water as well can be a source of conflict. We were looking at everything from GMOs and other solutions that could address some of the world's most difficult, intractable problems when it comes to food. And we had a guest who came on and talked about cricket cookies. We had a guest who came on and talked about how an invasive fish species could be turned into a fish jerky. So taking awful problems and flipping them jujitsu style into solutions is really an amazing scenario. So that was called goals post. And and that's one area where food fits into the Brooklyn Steroid Lab ecosystem. It's fascinating. It's always been my contention that food 
reign supreme and being connected to every other issue because food is so densely and intricately related to human welfare and human sustenance. So you really can't talk about transportation or air quality or whatever without thinking about how are people going to get fed. So that's, that's, you know, that's absolutely true. And it's funny that you mentioned transportation because there's a lot of talk about biofuels and biofuels were a solution at one point, but now I think people are rethinking biofuels as a transportation solution and because it really interferes with food production. And when we're clearing a lot of Amazonian rainforest to grow biofuels, that's not really a great solution. And that's okay. It's okay to go down a path and recognize that it's not the right path as long as we can correct it. There's another organization that we've worked with over a number of years. It's called the Eat Forum. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this group. They're based out of Norway. It's called the Eat Forum. And every year they hold a conference. Excuse me. Are you saying? EAT. Sorry. The Eat Forum. And every year, even though they're based in Norway, they have an annual conference in Stockholm, which is in neighboring Sweden, but it's called the Eat Stockholm Food Conference. And that sort of examines in a great two or three days of thought leadership, the intersection of food, science, sustainability, agriculture, and celebrity chefs. So Marcus Samuelson will be there and Michael Pollan will be there. And these are folks that have actually met at previous editions of the Eat Stockholm Food Forum. But it's incredible. You're absolutely right how food is at the center of the universe when it comes to it's really interconnected. And that's why the SDGs are really interconnected. One, pushing one lever on one of the SDGs, say it's poverty or gender equality or climate, impacts all of the other SDGs. So it can impact food or making an improvement in the food system or in the food space can have benefits that reach far into some of the other problems that we have, including gender equality and and education and things of that nature. Well, that, I guess, is the very nature of a system that affecting one element of it affects all elements of it. Absolutely. (laughs) So what kind of tangible things? I've gone to a few UN conferences in my life, and I love seeing people coming from all over the world wearing all the different clothes that they wear all over the world and carrying the same laptops and briefcases that everybody (laughs) else carries. But what kind of tangible things can come out of a big conference like the EAT conference? A lot of it is about solutions. And if I go back to Goals Post for a second, which was the event that we put on about food, there's two different next generation entrepreneurial innovation labs that we work closely with. One is called Unleash and one is called Enactus. Unleash is an annual convening, pre-COVID anyway, They're going to start it up again this year of 1,000 next generation entrepreneurial change makers from 150 countries. Oh, but to be in that room. (laughs) It's incredible. And and, and in 2017, the first year we did it, it was in Denmark. Then 2018 was Singapore. 2019 was China. And then they were supposed to do India in 2020 and 2021, but because of COVID, it was postponed. And now they're going to do it in November, December in India of this year. And to see the solutions that come out of these scenarios in which 1,000 strangers are basically put into a room and they form teams comprising people from multiple countries and they're tackling these intractable problems posed by the SDGs. Each solution is supposed to try to address one of the SDG challenges. So there are food solutions there. There are education solutions. There are climate solutions. It's really quite incredible. And how granular are those solutions? Are they for demonstration projects or are they for things that can easily go beyond a small test? They're supposed to be entrepreneurial. So they're supposed to be able to live on their own and be scalable. An entrepreneurial solution that works in Kenya could be scaled to work anywhere else in the world. One of the examples that I gave earlier 
came out of Unleash. That was, I think it's called Akai Fish, and it takes place in Mexico. And they take this invasive fish species and they turn it into a fish jerky. Now, not only does that become a healthy nutritional snack, number one, number two, it gives employment to fishermen in the Mexico region and fishermen who've been devastated by this invasive species who are losing all the fish that they normally are able to catch. And number three, it's reducing the presence of this invasive species and targeting it. So it's it's really a win. Now, if you can take that approach and apply it to a different country, a different region with a different invasive species, that's how it's scalable. There was another program also out of Mexico called Microterra. And Microterra was a program that was utilizing inland fish farming and turning fish poop into fish food. And what they were able to do was to take the nitrates out of the fish poop. And usually inland fish farming, I'm sorry, is taxing in so many ways. It's really expensive to change the water as often and frequently as it needs to be changed. It taxes the groundwater under the land, which creates arability problems throughout the region. And whenever that toxic water is released and the water is changed, it takes all the toxins and brings them out to sea and and pollutes everything in its path. Which is one of the big local objections about fish farming. So if you're able to create a scenario where the water doesn't have to be changed and the waste that the fish create can be turned into food pellets, that's a huge win-win. So that's what that team is working on. So again, there's all kinds of food scenarios. None of these are food scenarios that you think about when you're going out to a restaurant, but these are all food systems scenarios where incredible people are coming up with incredible solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. Yeah, I think sometimes the whole problem seems so intractable when people talk about and they hit their heads and say, oh, how do we feed the next billion, which is a watchword of people who are you know, thinking futuristically in the food industry. It's going to be a lot of different decisions and a lot of different new initiatives that create a new system or nudge the old system at least. Absolutely. So for example, the example you just gave of using the fish poop, one of the big issues is that the conversion rate of how much energy and how much nutrition essentially it takes to raise a farm fish has been a real issue. Absolutely. So this is fascinating to me. I can also talk about the elephant project, which is less food related and more- Elephant uh, project. I want to hear about the elephant project. (laughs) um, The only food connection that you'll see is that there was a starving populace in Mozambique that essentially ate all of the animals in the country because of the civil war but it's tangentially tied to food. I'm curious. Did they eat elephants? They ate everything. One million people died in Mozambique. So what's the project? We'll be back with Lance Gould in a minute. I'm Chaba Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred. 
my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. And we're back with Lance Gould of Brooklyn Story Labs. One of our anchor projects when we first started in 2017, 2018, was an elephant translocation project. And we were working, I do a lot of panel moderation. I was doing some panel moderation in Botswana, as one does. And I was approached (laughs) by by a for-profit that came to me and said, we have a purpose-driven project we'd like to talk about. They said, for every hectare of land that we disturb with excavation, this was a diamond company. They said, for every hectare of land that we disturb with excavation, we try to have six hectares of land that we protect. And so we actually own a number of nature reserves in South Africa and Botswana, which are the only two countries that allow for the private ownership of game. And one of these nature reserves is in South Africa. It's in the corner of in the northern part of South Africa near the Botswana and Zimbabwe borders. It's called Venetia Limpopo, and it's about the size of Atlanta. It's massive, but it's not massive enough for elephants. Elephants have these huge migratory patterns and 10,000 miles or so. And this particular reserve had a carrying capacity of between 40 and 60 elephants. That's how many elephants the ecosystem could handle. But they had 270 elephants on this property, more than 200 elephants, too many for the ecosystem to handle. Too many elephants in one location can destroy it. They'll overgraze, they'll knock over trees. They can just run ramshod over the environment. But Mozambique, which is a neighboring country to South Africa, had a devastating civil war from 1977 to 1992. One million people died in that conflict. Many died of famine. And the starving populace of the country consumed every animal in Mozambique. Essentially, there was almost no wildlife left in Mozambique after this conflict was over. Now, when I noted that Too many elephants in one ecosystem can destroy it. Not enough elephants in an ecosystem in that kind of habitat can also uh, stunt that ecosystem and not let it thrive because elephants have 17 or 18 different traits that can help ecosystems thrive. Their dung is incredibly fertile. Some plants count on elephants to propagate because they'll consume the plant seeds and disperse them elsewhere. They'll knock over trees in a way that creates animal highways that otherwise would be impenetrable for animals. 61 different invertebrates can live in an elephant footprint in the rainy season. There are keystone species, so the ecosystems without elephants are, are essentially devastated. So by moving 200 elephants from one ecosystem with too many to one ecosystem with essentially none, could save both. So we helped create this program that was called Moving Giants. It was a double entendre on the moving of the elephants. And we captured this in a video documentary. We captured it in a social media campaign. And we had a website that was up for a number of years, now defunct, like the Boston Phoenix, that, that captured but, elephant and conservation news from around the world. There's not a direct connection between, between this elephant project and food, but it's just when you're examining systems around the world, as we were discussing, around the globe, and certain countries face different problems than other countries. And so that, that's the best way to put it. But this is a solution. Translocation is a solution 
that is going to give the people of Mozambique not only a healthier animal habitat because of what the elephants can bring there, but also there's two kinds of poaching. There's commercial poaching and big ticket poaching, and then there's subsistence poaching. And it seems like in, in Mozambique, the latter has been much more of an issue because, again, of the poverty in that country. But in teaching the local population that having elephants can be more beneficial than not having them, and it's more expensive, it hurts the local economy to kill an elephant more than it does to, to have a living elephant that can be there for tourism and for other reasons. That it seems to be an effective methodology. To, it, now the elephant population in Mozambique is really growing. In fact, there's a really fascinating scenario in one of the parks in Mozambique, a different park than the one we were working with, where elephants have evolved to not growing tusks anymore. There's been an incredible evolution there. Where, Wait, uh, they have just evolved so that they don't grow tusks? There seems to be an elephant population, and I believe it's called Gogoroso National Park in Mozambique, where elephants are no longer growing tusks because evolutionarily they seem to recognize that having tusks harms them because it puts them in a poacher's crosshairs. Now, I don't think that's why it's evolved that way, but it could be that the elephants that have the tusk are the ones that have been targeted. And so the ones that are continuing to populate are the ones that don't have the big tusks or don't have any tusks. But it's a fascinating development that's happening in Mozambique where elephants are evolving to not grow tusks anymore. Interesting, where they just seem to live longer because they're not brutalized for it and they can propagate species and carry on. Maybe it's a recessive trait. We don't know, but exactly. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Wow. So all of this is happening. And how are we doing on the SDGs, especially with respect to food? Are things better in the world from your vantage point? I would say things were on an upward trajectory until a particular orange-haired person was elected president. Now, I don't want to blame everything on him, but certainly we're in a perfect storm right now of the climate emergency, a global pandemic, and a rise of authoritarian governments, where you see even before the Ukraine conflict, there was great difficulty in navigating some of the authoritarian leaders that had taken power around the world. And you mix in the social justice issues that were prevalent everywhere, especially in this country. And it's difficult to say that we're making progress. I'm sorry to say that I don't think we are making progress. and I think we're going backward. I think with regards to food, there's great possibilities that we don't have to have a starving populace in the world. There's enough land and there's enough possibility for food to sustain everyone. But we're making difficult and incorrect choices, I would say. There's an opportunity for integrating more plant-based foods into our diet to sustain the global populace. But again, there's a lot of great challenges ahead, and I don't think we're going in the right direction. Well, that's problematic. For me, I've been studying this for so long, and the needle doesn't seem to move. The amount of food that we can produce, the amount of food that we do produce in the world, and the amount of it that gets spoiled before it even makes it into the, the human yes. distribution system, whether it spoils in the fields or in transit or in distribution, it's just kind and so of- So much food goes to waste after it's, already, yeah. after it's already prepared. Yeah. I've seen some really interesting solutions tackling that scenario. Have you heard of an app called good to go No. Good to go is an app that I've seen here in New York City where you can enter in a restaurant or you can see a checklist or menu, as it were, of, of restaurants that are participating and find out what they have available the next day. It's like a bagel shop that after 5 p.m. you can get a dozen bagels because- Day old lasagna. Exactly. 
But that's good enough for me. And that's good enough for a lot of people to have day-old lasagna. That's not a bad thing. We have a couple of things like that are fascinating that I'm familiar with. One of the things that happens in New England is something called the Daily Table. And it was started by a man who used to be the CEO of Trader Joe's. Okay. And he's got food and social justice religion. And he sells all of those, whether it's bread or salads or produce, everything which is a little bit at the sell-by date. Mm-hmm. And sells it at and makes incredible deals and sells it because so much food is being wasted, and it sets up grocery stores in areas where they are needed, and it's a food, pretty great concept. Visits. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Listen, everything that we do that's positive is worth doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, couldn't couldn't agree more. The Daily Table. I'll look for that one. Yeah. So, just because I'm always interested in this, tell me a little bit about what you think about food. Is it something that animates you? Did you grow up in a sort of food-focused family? Is that? My mom was a food writer, actually. Oh my God. Tell me about that. My mom had always been interested in food. My dad went to medical school in Belgium. And so my parents moved to Belgium and lived there for four years, where my mom became very immersed in French cuisine culture. I think my mom was about seven months pregnant with me and when she learned that in Belgium, they'll if there's any difficulties in childbirth, they'll try to save the child before they try to save the mother. And she thought, ah, perhaps I'll go back to New York to deliver this baby. <laughs> and so I was born in New York. But she then became a food writer, and she taught food classes in, in, in Westchester and New Jersey when we lived in those two locales. But I think when I was growing up, I was like, ew, I don't want this balsamic vinaigrette on my salad. I don't know what that is, but I just want a hamburger. And so I don't think I reconnected to food until maybe I was in college and I started exploring, you know, in Boston, started exploring uh, Indian food and other cuisines from around the world and lit the, lit the fire for visiting the world. And I've done a lot of uh, travel for work and I've done a lot of travel otherwise. And really food is always a part of that uh, experience for me. I just can't imagine how funny that is that your mother was a food writer and you went on, give me the straight up American stuff, mom, don't try to. <laughs> oh my God. I used to, we used to have seat cushions on, at the dining table and, and I couldn't leave the table until I finished something. So I hide certain things under the seat cushions at the table so I could just have French fries and hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> that is really funny. This is great talking to you. One last set of questions. How did you get yourself and Brooklyn Story Lab into a position where you could cover such big stories. Not even cover, that's the wrong word. Facilitate the conversation and the communication of these big topics, like the SDGs. I think from having a perch at HuffPost for many years, which I was um, sort of the ambassador, if you will, for the brand to the UN and all the UN different agencies and a lot of governments from around the world, a lot of NGOs from around the world where I was really working hard to make sure that we were representing them and their voices on our platform, gave me the opportunity to meet these people, to create a network of people that I had cultivated before I was at HuffPost as well, because I used to cover the UN as a journalist in New York before I was at the Phoenix. Um, So I had had great inroads to the UN and, and, and the international community here. And Once I started Brooklyn Story Lab, the idea being that we wanted to work with purpose-driven organizations, it was really pretty clear and simple. That was the audience we were going for. That was the the demographic we were going for. That was, those are the stories we wanted to cover. And a lot of it was through goodwill. And I'm on the board right now of World Elephant. That's a pro bono position, but I really try to devote a lot of time to causes that I care about. 
And so uh, there's a lot of opportunity to, to further the social good work that so many organizations are doing. And now we've turned that into a business. Well, fascinating, inspiring to talk to you. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's inspiring to talk with you. And I've always loved the, the work that you've done and, and the, how you're covering food is just so inventive and so brilliant. Thank you, Lance. This was great. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 